Assalamu alaikum. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to the, inshallah, closing session of Surah Al-Imran. Um, I, I have to say that I, you know, it's, it's Christmas here, and of course, you know, people are away, and people are busy doing things. Um, but I, I'm so grateful to be here. I, of all the places, if, if, if I were to be given a wish that I could be doing anything anywhere at this moment, there is really nowhere, nowhere else I would rather be than here, um, learning the last bit of Surah Al-Imran. And, um, you know, it's, it's special for me as a convert, and I want to say, maybe I can tell my little Christmas story, um, because now I'm, I'm coming on 28 years as a convert. And certainly growing up, Christmas was, of course, magical and the most important time. Um, and I was an only child, and so I was tasked with um, always decorating the tree by myself. My parents would make a point of taking me to get a tree. and But, you know, I would put the decorations up and take them down. And my favorite thing would be when my parents would go to bed, I would sit in the living room um, by myself and just stare at the Christmas lights um, for, you know, but I think it was a very long time and just um, contemplating life and things, you know, this is as a young person. Um, and now when I, when I look back on that time, um, I, I remember staring at the tree and always sort of wishing and hoping and always sort of feeling that there was something missing in, in, in life. I mean, I think as an only child, you are sort of you know, regularly lonely and, you know, it, it, you feel like you dream a lot about, you know, what your life might become when you're older. And, um, you know, and also holidays tend to make you think about things that, you know, either make you sad or wistful or things like that, um, at least for me. And so looking back now on those times, like I recognize that a lot of times that loneliness or that feeling of emptiness is, as we've talked about here in, in the, the Halakas and Project Illumin, is sort of a longing for for God, and it's um, sort of a hopefulness, you know, searching for something that would fill that sort of visceral em emptiness in your stomach that you often have, um, and especially when you're not sure what's out there, what's in the world, what's going to happen, and all of that. Um, you know, I recognize that it, it was a longing for meaning and a longing for God, and so I happily now think back that you know, obviously God was with me at those moments, you know, when I was by myself staring at the Christmas tree and wondering what my life would become. And here I am now excited to be as a Muslim studying, um, you know, the, the finishing bit of Surah Al-Imran. Um, but it's, um, you know, God really granted my wish, which was to find meaning and purpose. And to be here studying the Quran in this way is a dream for me, a dream come true, because being in search for meaning and purpose, there is no greater meaning than when you can connect finally with the holy book of your chosen faith and, you know, with the conversion and all the things that come with it. Um, and to finally feel like after 28 years of, you know, knowing the Quran but not really knowing the Quran, to actually feel like, oh my God, now I'm starting to understand the deeper meaning in a way that I never thought that I could. And I say this because I know that um, Christmas is a, is a difficult time, especially for converts. And I know that one of the issues when I converted was, was thinking about, you know, how, what would my relationship now with Christmas become? Because I had so many memories attached to it. Um, and, you know, in America, it's, it's not 
religious so much as it is um, celebrational, cultural. You know, it's a time when people are happy they're giving gifts. But, you know, on the flip side, too, it's a lonely time for people. There's a lot of emotion wrapped up in it. So when you become a convert and you become a Muslim and you think back on that and you think about your family and you think about all of the things that are connected to Christmas and you start thinking about, okay, how am I going to let go of that emotional attachment? Um, how can I really become Muslim when I have so much of my heart invested in Christmas and all that it represents? And I think that the beautiful thing, I mean, you know, now we, um, you know, we deal with a lot of the, the stupidity of people, you know, getting into arguments on social media about whether Muslims are allowed to say Merry Christmas or not and how, you know, this is haram or that is haram. And which to me actually is quite an affront, you know, and offensive considering there are, you know, Muslims in China in, you know, prison camps, um, genocide going on in, you know, Burma, in about to be in India, in, you know, Yemen, I mean, Palestine, all the places that you can imagine that are Muslim lands. And, you know, certainly American Muslims on social media are talking about whether or not they should wish, you know, happiness to people um, who associate a lot of happiness with Christmas. I mean, that's ridiculous and stupid to me. But for people who genuinely are wondering, you know, like, okay, how should I feel I f about, like, you know, converts, um, you know, I, I, alhamdulillah, I feel like once I started to really understand um, what was important and meaningful in life, and I recognized that Christmas was often, I mean, you know, it's a happy time, it's full of lights and all of that, but it, you know, it, it's not a religious celebration in, in, you know, Christian America so much as it is um, a way for, you know, us to give material gifts. It's, you know, like Hallmark cards are good for commercial purposes. I mean, it's very commercial, you know, and it represents um, something that is very antithetical to what is truly beautiful about being Muslim and Islam. And I feel like a lot of these conversations that people engage in and about saying Merry Christmas and not are silly too because if you truly believe that God knows what's in your heart and God is with you and God knows your intentions whether you say Merry Christmas or not you know that the substance is really what matters and I have no problem saying Merry Christmas to people who find that an expression of love and kindness and joy and I feel that that is the beautiful ethic that we as Muslims should share is you know recognizing that others gain happiness and joy from that and it's no nothing off of us to do that we should do that we should be creating goodness and happiness and joy so I mean I say all of this sort of like thinking this is really silly I you know this doesn't need really need to be said but considering what I've seen you know on social media I, maybe it does need to be said that I think our purpose here is to try and bring happiness and joy and smiles um, at wherever we can to whomever we can and that, um, you know, as a convert, if you feel conflicted, I don't think you should. You should just focus on bringing joy and know that God knows what's in your heart and just, you know, ignore all the garbage and stupidity that you hear elsewhere. So um, anyway, like I said, I can't think of anywhere else I would rather be than spending time knowing more about God's book and what God has to say about us, about all the generations that came before, about what God wants for us as Muslims to build and to aspire for and to create in our time, our very short time on earth. And um, and I'm, I'm happy that people are joining us and whether you watch this now with us or you know at a later date on our recording, 
um, I, I wish you all the joy of the holiday season because it's undeniable that it's a time when people are happy being with family, appreciating the time off and the, the slowing down of life. Um, and there's always so much good to be grateful for and I'm grateful for being here. So thank you so much and um, inshallah, I'm looking forward to an amazing session. Inshallah, we will conclude tonight. Surah Imran. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. الذي هدانا الكتاب والحكمة الذي هدانا الكتاب والحكمة فهل نحن مسلمون وهل نحن مقبلون وهل نحن مستمعون وهل نحن مصدقون الحمد لله وسبحانه معظم شانه مالك الملك يؤتي الملك من يشاء ويعز من يشاء ويذل من يشاء بغير حساب هو الله الذي لا إله إلا هو الحي القيوم كل ما في الأرض وما في السماء طائع له مستسلم له فهل نحن مسلمون ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على الحبيب المصطفى القدوة القدوة المعلم الأعظم الحبيب الأول هادي البشر المرسل رحمة للعالمين خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين فألف صلاة وتسليم على آل البيت الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه الطيبين وعلى من اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب اللهم يا علي عظيم يا رب العالمين أنت تعلم ما بنا وما نحن فيه لك الملك ولك, ولك الأمر ونحن لك طائعون فيا رب رحماك رحماك 
لطفك بنا يا علي عظيم اللهم لا تكلفنا إلا وسعنا اللهم لا تكلفنا إلا وسعنا اللهم لا تؤاخذنا إن نسينا أو اخطأنا ولا تحمل علينا إصرا كما حملته على الذين من قبلنا ولا تحمل علينا إصرا كما حملته على الذين من قبلنا ولا تحمل علينا إصرا كما حملته على الذين من قبلنا يا رب ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به واعف عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصرنا على قوم الكافرين At the outset, I apologize for starting late because I haven't been feeling well and uh, I'm struggling a bit. So, you recall from last halakha that Allah tells us something noteworthy about sorrow we know from human experience we often say things like you know when it rains and it pours when something goes wrong many have noticed that it tends to be when things go wrong one after the other, they compound. And Allah tells us that that is actually not accidental. That that is quite intentional. That the compounding of sorrows is in fact the process that tests your metal, cleanses your elements, 
and offers you an opportunity for elevation. It is the very nature of ease that changes when you are tested by an accumulation of pain and challenges. The ultimate dynamic and interaction is not to comfort you that the cause of your sorrow will eventually go away and be replaced with something that is the opposite to it. But to get you to understand that it is all in your mind, how do you react to sorrow? It's not an issue of whether sorrow exists or not, because life will bring you plenty of painful situations. But the, the focus should be on you and the way you construct your being. And Taking seriously the idea that often hardship is actually a sign that you are in God's gaze rather than that you are forgotten by God. Because those, as the Prophet says, who find the doors of wealth and comfort open up to them. It's often a very bad sign. It's not a good sign. It's often a sign that they're people of the dunya and uh, God sort of looked elsewhere. And at the same time, understand that God doesn't allow a calamity to fall upon you without it being rooted in some failure on your part. that awalamma asabatkum musibatun qad asabtum mithlayha qultum anna hadha qul huwa min andi anfusikum inna allaha ala kulli shay'in qadir if you are wondering why then look within because you will find that there is 
a a seed, a basic central foundation that explains why this calamity fell upon you in particular and affects you the way it affects you in particular. And as we said, the rather tough question, the really tough question of, okay, I understand this is something that in some way, to some degree, I called upon myself. I deserved. And at, and by, by, by virtue of that fact, it is a pressure cooker moment. It's a moment where you confront what is my role, what is the lesson, what does the gem become the levels of sorrow that are being placed on your head are supposed to tell you. There are people in many parts of the world, unfortunately the undeveloped world, militaries will enter into war and will effectively lose the war. And all they become concerned with is cover-up. To hide the extent of the calamity from their countrymen. Or to come up with every excuse other than we are the problem. We deserved it. And that's precisely the type of attitude that Al-Umran is disabusing Muslims of from the beginning. This level of compounded sorrow is very important to learn from. But what is particularly important is to learn your role as in Eucalyptus for bringing on these calamities upon yourself. So it could be, for instance, in a military campaign, your lack of accountability, your lack of transparency. It could be corruption. It could be injustice in dealing with so many people over the years. There could be a million different reasons, and it could be all of them. But even at the individual level, if you don't ask that core question, not to self-flagellate and say, I deserved it, 
but to ask the question in what ways have I sparked it, instigated it? In what ways have I called it upon myself? In what ways does this calamity move me forward? reminds us of something that is particularly difficult for believers during periods of transformation because we imagine an ant that, that is born and lives and the lifespan of the ant allows it to understand the universe from its perspective. And regardless of how intelligent Allah makes an ant is, the circumstances of her lifespan creates a body of knowledge that it cannot go beyond. You know, why is it that some ants, as they're going around performing their jobs, suddenly a mysterious force comes down from the heavens and crushes a whole bunch of them and kills them? You know, it sounds, it sounds like cosmic, and, and if, if ants thought this way. And ultimately, what we know about how long ant hives or, or, or plantations go on for and so on, and, and see such a small picture of the matter. Likewise, think of Muslims in Spain, they, they go into Spain, they dominate political and social and cultural life in Spain for about 800 years. After the Reconquista, we are suddenly aware of the Spanish people who are not only expel Muslims from Spain, but even go beyond and become a major colonial power. Very few people think about what was the state of the Spanish people for the 800 years before the crumbling of the Muslim state. Imagine how many Spaniards born in this 800 years 
how many were born confronted by utter frustration, believing how in God's name does this thriving civilization that Muslims have in Spain ever get a change? We are on the margins. We live in mountainous areas between Spain and France, and there is really no hope. The sad thing is that the, the, you take the individual who lived during a century of absolute ineffectiveness and lack of accomplishment on part of the Spaniard people, well, their perspective on God's promise, at least as they believe it, is very different than someone who took place in the Reconquista and turned Spain into a colonial power. No. I say this because notice in Wift in one fifty nine this promise that was repeated in the Quran many times. إن ينصركم الله فلا غالب لكم فمن ذا الذي ينصركم من بعده وعلى الله فليتوكل المؤمنون So this promise that if Allah comes to your side you cannot be defeated but if Allah doesn't you will be defeated Of course and you, you have to confront this, that one of the major causes of apathy, lack of principles, lack of seriousness, lack of deliberation, lack of conscientiousness, lack of commitment, lack of faith is that you are born you are a Muslim born in a period like the Spaniard born in a century where Muslims looked like they were going to be in Spain forever you can't see how things are going to change if you read 
literature written by Spaniards after the Muslim conquest of Spain, not only was there despair, but there were constant complaints by the clergy that Spaniards were losing their identity, that Spaniards thought that the cool thing would convert to Islam and learn Arabic, and that Spaniards hardly would use their own language or refer to their own scholars that were infatuated by the language and the culture of their conquerors. And they would bemoan and bewail that, you know, it's, it's all over. There, there's just no hope. Um, very, very, very different. Fast forward 600 years, very different from what their writing said a few hundred years later where they are full of enthusiasm, they are bragging that most Muslims pay them the jizya, not the other way around. Um, they are, they, they see the expulsion of Muslims from Spain on the horizon. This is one, re, this is one of the biggest challenges for so many Muslims is that if they don't have that awareness that this period that we're living in is not a period of victories. You are not expected to achieve any victory in anything. What you are expected to do is to think very seriously how you can be part of the solution to emerge out of the state rather than part of the problem. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. If you're a doctor and you live, you spend a lot of money to throw a fancy wedding for your children, spend a lot of money to educate your children, spend a lot of money to, fit, to build in a, live in a fancy home, spend a lot of money to make sure your children are taken care of and your wife is taken care of for many, many years to come. And on the side, you go attend some meetings, chit-chat, you're chit-chatting with people like you, doctors, engineers, you know, who basically know nothing about anything other than their professions. You are part of the problem. And so when the gham, ala gham comes, and you ask Allah, why is this happening? Well, it's happening because of you. Let me be very blunt about this, because I am just, if I don't testify, I will be held accountable. I've been saying this now for 30 years. I've arrived in LA, I've watched lavish weddings thrown 
by Indian families, Pakistani families, Palestinian families, Syrian families, Egyptian families. And the same people who you go to and say, support a publication project will give you an absolute headache. Sponsor students so you can educate a student, give you absolute headache. Listen, pay attention, pay attention. The same people who will post on their Instagram pictures of the fancy decoration in their weddings, the fancy food in their weddings or their social events, whatever. Pictures that demonstrate wealth at tafakhur, what takabur. Communicate status. Look how wonderful, how, how, you know, how much we splurged and paid and look at all the wonderful uh, dessert and they will not post a single picture of happy, smiling Syrian orphans that they've taken care of. I ask you, I know it's ridiculous to say this, but put yourself in Allah's shoes. You created these people, you gave them the Quran, you gave them the Prophet Muhammad, you even gave them an annoying human being like Khalid al to keep after them. And Allah inspired some intellects to create something like Instagram. And you know very well what Islamophobes are posting in their Instagram. You know very well what the supporters of Israel and those people with a cause that is anti-Muslim cause post on their Facebook and Instagram. If you don't, you can check it out for yourself. I can tell you that these people never post anything about their luxury events. If, the, if it happens, if they hide it, they're ashamed of it. They post pictures about their meeting with politicians. They post pictures about uh, in, in new settlements in the Holy Land. They post pictures about how they violated the sanctity of the Aqsa Mosque. But I've never seen, never, you know, they might post pictures of what's her face, post pictures of herself wearing a bikini and going to swim in the ocean. But she does that to, to, to annoy Muslims. But I've never seen this grotesque materialist practice of saying, look, look at our decor. 
Look at our architecture. Look at how much we spent on food. Look at how much we spent on decorations. Look at how much we splurged. At the same time, Allah is fully aware of that money that you spent and what this money could have done. Could have done. As the winter now is here and thousands upon thousands of children and women and are freezing to death every day. That same account you, my dear Muslim, has not posted. Where you actually become a good moral example. You know, I am taking care of these orphans and, you know, I've sent them money and because I, I can tell you from experience, they are so grateful that they actually put your name on little signs and they're filmed holding up the signs. Little children, it's thank you, so on, so they, they, they know that you've, you're, for the money that you're sending, you are allowing them to eat, you're allowing them to be clothed, you're allowing them to be saved. And then we say, why Allah? Why are we like this? Why are we, why, why are we mistreated so badly? Well, it's bimafi and fusikum. It's because of what is in you. That's the problem. If you think it's justified to spend $30,000, wallahi, I attended a, a, a wedding in LA. This was back in the 90s. A Muslim family, the bill for that wedding was a million dollars back in the early 90s. million dollars personally I had a disagreement with with an imam I won't name him out of respect I he was invited to do the Quran I said I won't attend the wedding we are I cannot attend a wedding well, you know, maybe they donate enough, uh, okay? Well, you, you know, their philanthropy is public knowledge because they've created a nonprofit organization for philanthropy. And according to public records, according to public records, their philanthropy for the same year they spent a million dollars on the wedding was $30,000 total for everything including money to impact, money to the Islamic Center of Southern California. Money. 
Younger people come and say, oh, are you saying that the solution is as simple as that? Yeah, I'm saying the solution is simple as that. It is, you, you don't need, you know, to, to, to go attend Harvard to come up with fancy theories to be able to think through things. Simple, basic, fundamental morality and humanity holds so many answers. Again, when I was in LA, I knew a lot of Muslim families that would say, invite you to breakfast or invite you to dinner or invite you to lunch. And it was very, very common. No, I mean, it didn't even raise an eyebrow. Breakfast, $150 for two people. Lunch, 200 people, $200 for two people. Dinner, $350 for two people. And those same people, you come and ask for a donation for to allow a widow to pay her rent, to allow an orphan to buy basic necessity or, or, or obtain legal representation for an orphan. And we're haggling over $500. The same people that I've went to lunch with many times. Of course, I can't afford to pay the bill, but they do. They pay it. And every time I sort of like look at the bill and I'm just... My, my question to you, my question to you, if Allah, if it is true that these are our personality traits and these are our characteristics, if Allah then comes and supports us and aids us and makes us victorious, rather than the people who have a wrong cause because they want to colonize the lands of Muslims, but they're freaking serious. They don't waste their money this way. They're, they're, they're darn serious. They, they might be very stringy. You go out to lunch with them and they say, let's split the bill. This happened to me a million times. We go out to lunch to the faculty club, not anything fancy. They say, let's split the bill. But those same people, when it comes to building the halal on campus, the same professors, 
$30 million was raised to build the Halal on campus from the same professors who were splitting a $20 lunch bill with me. The same people, when tensions with Gaza occurred, the first thing you say, and this is the friend that I know, said, oh, you know, my wife in my car keeps breaking up, my, my wife, but, you know, I'm going to have to put up, I told her, we have to put, up, put off buying, buying a new car because Israel is in crisis and it needs us. So, you know, we gave, I gave up my, gave my savings to donated to Israel. So we're going to have to just stay with the old car for another six months or a year. You tell me, if you were God, what would you do? If you're just God, what would you do? But what I want to everyone to understand it is a personal responsibility. You can't change the world unless you change yourself and change your family. There's no such thing as, oh, people are horrible, but you know, I'm gonna overlook what I do and what my family does. It always starts with you and your family. After then reminding the Prophet that although the challenges confronted, to say the least, are numerous, polemics by Christian and Jewish groups, hypocrites that withdrew from battle causing a major psychological blow. And in the aftermath of Uhud, the, the complications abound and become even more complicated. And as we said, that Allah comes in and tells the Prophet, that that remember it is Allah's blessings that orients your heart towards those people in a kind and generous and warm way and remember that despite all these challenges if you were obnoxious and rude and um, unfeeling hard-headed hard-hearted 
فظا غليظ القلب غليظ القلب someone who's just not very empathetic so they would you would find that the results would be far more negative but so what should your attitude be is ask Allah to forgive them you yourself forgive them and continue consulting with them i.e. empowering them in this process okay then we did we dealt with 160 with 161 now, Muhammad Asad translates it as, it is not conceivable that a prophet should deceive, since he who deceives shall be faced with his deceit on the day of resurrection. Uh, yeah, I mean, al-ighlal is a, is a form of deceit, but um, al-ighlal is... Um, it, it is. Uh, it's not necessarily deceit, but al-ighlal is a form of being inequitous, um, unfair, and in in a in a. Yeah, in, in a way that might make people think that something deceitful or dishonest is going on. And of course the question is, why does this ayah come in and say this about the Prophet And there are a couple of narratives or a couple of reports that we, we know of that talk about this. One of these reports says that in, um, I believe it was the Battle of Badr, not Uhud, that there was a, um, a, a piece of red velvet cloth, you know, a, 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 a piece of fabric that you would make into a dress or in some form of clothing. And that it went missing from the spoils of war. And that rumors started spreading. You can predict who's spreading these rumors that the Prophet took that um, peace for himself. And it turns out that he didn't. And some reports say that, well, this was revealed to, to answer this situation and to say 
that you know how, how could you have thought that the prophet would have just lifted this for himself a second set of reports say no what happened is that in the battle of Uhud, the, the old Arab traditional uh, rule was when it comes to spoils of war, is that whoever kills the person is entitled to their spoils. So you kill person X, then you're the one entitled to their sword, their shield, their helmet, um, possibly their horse, if they have one, or if they were fighting on a camel, their camel, um, and any other valuables that might be, have been found on the person of, of the person you've killed. That's the old pre-Islamic rule. And that in Badr, the Prophet ﷺ didn't change that rule. And that's precisely what happened, is that whoever would kill someone, they're entitled to their spoils. And that in the Battle of Uhud, that contributed to the chaos, that contributed to the decision of the arrowmen to abandon their posts because they figured, well, you know, by the time we get down, all the spoils would have been taken by the people on the battlefield. And according to these reports is that the Allah comes in and says that this is a form of hulul, to allow people to just grab whatever, uh, to, to grab the material of the person they've killed, that that's a form of ghulul, meaning a form of extreme injustice or inequity. And after this ayah, the decision was made that no one is allowed to take something, um, regardless of whether you've killed the person or not, but rather that all the spoils of war, all the shields, swords, horses, camels, whatever existed in the battlefield, would go to a central point and then distributed evenly among the, the fighters in the battle. And that, that was the occasion for revelation, is that basically the the this revelation ended up the, the process of individual collections of spoils of war. Um, There is something to both reports because we know that this is in fact was the practice in Badr and the practice in Uhud changed after Uhud changed. It was first was of war. 
we it is it is possible that um, that the first story is also true about the red velvet whatever and then they they eventually found it but but I am skeptical that they had anything to do with the revelation of the verse um, the Quranic prescription or statement that ما كان لنبي أن يغل وما يغل يأتي بما غل يوم القيامة ثم توفى كل نفس ما كسبت وهم لا يظلمون أفمن اتبع رضوان الله كمن سباء بصخط من الله ومأواهم جهنم وبئس المصير هم درجات عند الله والله بصير بما يعملون This statement, though, seems to me to have a different connotation than the one that the traditional tafsirs have given. Yahul, Yahul can also have another meaning than being unjust or uh, dishonest. Yahul can also mean bearing a grudge. So even in contemporary Arabic, Arabic we say when someone is seizing with resentment you say maghlul and if you want to say so, you know there's a common arabic expression idiomatic expression mut bighillak like you know die with your with your seizing um, jealousy and if you look at the context of this ayah it seems that the meaning that fits much better is that once Allah told the Prophet forgive them and uh, consult with them the, the Allah comes to the Prophet and says yeah I know you know this, this listen you know you were betrayed one third of the army withdrew. You were disobeyed. A lot of your friends got killed. You got injured. I'm sure you know the, the injury was hurting him for quite a while. After all, he was struck with a sword right on his face and shajara, so that it, it opened up his skull and dislocated his shoulder. And Allah comes and says, it is not acceptable for a prophet and yahud means not acceptable for a prophet to hold a grudge not acceptable 
to make it a personal issue of, well, you know, who hurt me and who hurt my friends. This is precisely why when Al-Habashi, the man who killed the Prophet's uh, uncle, Hamza, comes later, much later on, and, and asks for forgiveness, the, the Prophet is bound to give it. And say, okay, you're a Muslim brother. Because Allah said to him, Al-Ghudul is not a right path. Um, okay. Now, as we're leading to, to the closing matters in Ali Amran, so then Allah reminds Muslims, okay, I understand that you went through quite a trauma. And you, you know, some you feel a great deal of guilt for having failed your prophet. You feel a great deal of guilt about those who are martyred defending the prophet, and that type of trauma, and especially when people, you know, cover up trauma by being argumentative and trying to project blame of on others. So Allah comes and reminds them of what the role of the Prophet between them, amongst them is. So, لَقَدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَىٰ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ بَعْثَ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِنْ أَنفُسِهِمْ يَكْدُ عَلَيْهِمْ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ يَكْدُ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُذَكِّيهِمْ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ وَإِنْ كَانُوا مِنْ قَبْلِ لَفِي ضَلَالٍ مُبِينٍ أَوَلَمَّا أَصَابَتْكُمْ مُصِيبَةٌ قَدْ أَصَبْتُمْ مِثْلَيْهَا قُلْتُمْ أَنَّ هَذَا قُلْ هُوَ مِنْ عِنْدِ أَنْفُسِكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ This is uh, 164-165. Allah comes back and says, understand the role of this prophet amongst you is that he is, yes, he is a conveyor of message. But this is a man who also his counsel is to purify you and to purify you in Allah's eye and to bring you the book, the revelation, and wisdom. And that without him, you were lost. So redirect your energies from your tendency to become distracted inside marginal feuds with one another 
to the core issue that this man is a rare opportunity for you to transform, truly transform your life on the basis of the book and wisdom. And this is precisely why it's followed by do you now that a calamity has befallen you after you have had inflicted twice as much on your foes ask yourselves how has this come about say it has come from your own selves so I know that your whole thing is confusion and wanting to understand who's to blame and, 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 you know, going through the failures of this defeat. The representatives of morality and principle amongst you is the constant, is the stable fact. The variables is the way that you are responsible for your own conduct. So, because often when people go wrong, instead of blaming themselves, they blame the idea itself. Well, I am not a failure, but the Quran is a failure. This is how doubt creeps in into the hearts of so many Muslims, right? Well, you know, it's not me, it's the teachings. And quite remarkably, the Quran comes in and anticipates this whole entire thing. And, and it says, look within. It is not about the role of the Prophet. Um, it is about what weaknesses within you, what issues within you has cumulatively led to this experiencing this, this defeat. And 167, Allah then deals with, again, another social reality present in Medina at the time, is that those who said, قالوا لو نعلم قتالا لاتبعناكم. So a group of people having who did not fight either came back with Abdullah ibn Ubay or never went out in the battle itself started saying well our excuse is that has been wrongly translated by so many as if we knew how to fight, we would have joined you. But actually meant something very different in this context. It meant if we knew that there's going to be a fight, we would have joined you. It's sort of like, you know, the macho speak. Oh, you know, I, I didn't think, I didn't really take seriously that there was going to be a battle, 
But you know, if I knew there was going to be battle, I would have been there. I, I would have done you know marvelous things. And Allah sort of chides them, but in a, in a way that it deserves pause. So it says, "Hum kufri iman." You know, when they were saying stuff like that, when they were feeling like that, they were closer to kufr than closer to iman. Than iman. It's a it's a very these are not hypocrites. These were weak people who deluded themselves, lied to themselves. And it is if you have a conscience, this would bother you a lot because it's telling you, you know, when you were when you were feeling like this, you were really more kafir than Muslim. And so, if you have a conscience, you'd say, "Oh my God, who would want that?" Of course, it wouldn't work with the munafiqun. And again, so you see how the Quran talks to different people in immeasured, selective. An effective way. Because Allah knows that they are saying what is not in their heart. Allah knows what is in their heart, and Allah knows that they are in their hearts, they're cowards, they're scared. Okay. And One of the most important passages in Ali Amran is وَلَا تَحْسَبَنَّ الَّذِينَ قُتِلُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ أَمْوَاتًا بَلْ أَحْيَاءٌ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ يُرْدَقُونَ The affirmation is saying to us, you know, you guys think death is the greatest tragedy Yes, death is a tragedy if it is for the wrong reason. Because then you've wasted life. But understand that those who fight for a just cause, for a proper purpose, for an Islamically legitimate cause, their death doesn't mean death as you know it. But what does that mean? Are they fully conscious right now from the moment they're dead to the hereafter? Are they semi-conscious? Are you know what is it precisely? We don't know. But what Allah is saying is that for these people. Death is not death. It goes beyond the realm of your reality, where people are either alive or dead. That's what our life on this world has grown us accustomed to. 
someone is either alive or dead. There's no in-between. And in the dimensions of reality in which God exists, none of this necessarily needs to hold that you're either alive or dead. But you could be something else. But Allah assures us that It is not the type of fate that you think it is. That it is not a horrible conclusion to a human being. Okay. Now, Notice Ayah 172. 172, what it's talking about are the group of people. Remember the group of 70 people that went after hurt, injured, bleeding, went after the battle of Uhud with the Prophet to send a message of strength to the Meccans. So Allah praises this group in this ayah. And that's why, you know, those who answered the call of Allah and his Prophet after they've been hurt. And notice something in the Quran that is rather consistent. Um, cowardliness and greed and self-centeredness, being focused solely on the self regardless of, are always connected to some shaitani influence. إِنَّمَا ذَلِكُمُ الشَّيْطَانُ يُخَوْفُ أَوْلِيَاءَهُ فَلَا تَخَافُوهُمْ وَخَافُونِ وَإِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ That these types of compromised states that you go through, don't kid yourself, these are states, shaitani states. But shaitan doesn't have dominion over awliyaullah. Waliyullah, remember, waliyullah is someone who is very close to Allah, khalilullah. Someone who is, as Quran puts it, is in Allah's eyes. Someone who's sold life on earth meaning doesn't care about life on earth and focus solely on their relationship with Allah and so they grew ever closer to Allah until Allah loves them and they love Allah 
shaitan has no authority over awliyaullah but shaitan has and by shaitan is symbolic because there are many shayateen and there are shayateen who are human and there are shayateen who are jinn but all of these shayateen dwell in the realm of the things that Ali Umran points out to you as consistent sources of problems. Now, note As Ali Omran goes on to emphasize that this project, this demanding standard that Ali Omran, which we inshallah summarize, has set out, is not possible without all the things that the Quran keeps emphasizing. That is solid faith a solid belief, constant state of dhikr, and sacrifice of material things. We then come to So we come to 180. Part of the polemics, as you would expect, that as Medina and, Medina and the inhabitants of Medina have consistently confronted, this is from Badr and Uhud, consistent, consistently confronted tough economic circumstances. Mecca has boycott against Medina. Mecca has a standing agreement with its Arab tribes, the tribes that trade with Mecca, that they're not allowed to trade in Medina. If you do trade in Medina, then you are not welcome in Mecca markets. This influences Medina economy in very serious ways. But moreover, Mecca has the power to do something, and that is when 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 Mecca imposed this embargo upon all the tribes surrounding Mecca, surrounding Medina, Medina started th thinking, there were certain people in Medina started thinking, well, listen, we used to rely on the caravans organized by Mecca to reach as far away as India and Ceylon and what is today Afghanistan um, and also countries like Egypt 
And so if the Meccans are going to impose this embargo on us, why don't we go beyond and extend our trade routes to reach these far away markets because otherwise we're, we're in trouble. Well, the Meccans, because they had better um, logistics, better better network of informants, and better armed, more mobile and swift military, they were able to intercept most of the Medinian efforts at reaching far away markets like India, Ceylon, even Sham, Egypt. Again, put yourself in the place of people at that time. You, you're you're a native of Medina, you've lived there all your life, you're accustomed to certain standard of living. There is a problem now with the business you used to do with Jewish tribes because of their animosity to this new religion. And you used to do business with Mecca and tri uh, tribes around Mecca and Medina and it brought you good money. So then you start thinking, okay, let's generate the capital as difficult as it is to trade with these faraway markets and you're prevented from doing that. What do you think the psychological effect is going to be? If, if things about your faith and your commitments are not clear. If things are not clear in your heart and mind, you're going to say, what, what is this? You know, th these people came to Medina and life is getting harder. How am I supposed to raise my children? War, boycotts, you know, now the, my income has gone down 90%. And we're always told you have to donate. Do you see? But that's the challenge. That's the challenge. The challenge is not to compromise principles so you can allow these businessmen to make money so they can get allied. It's to say to the businessmen, well, that's your jihad. And yes, you know, you have to get accustomed to a new standard of living, which includes taking care of those who have less than you. You see, if you teach the seerah according to the reality, historical reality of what happened, you will affect the morality and value systems of Muslims. Because the way we teach with Sira today, we get Muslims off the hook. We don't give them a sense of responsibility for what they are bearing. 
But if they understand the standard that they have to work against, then maybe. Yeah, sure, you're going to lose a lot of people who are munafiqun. Good riddance. But those who remain will be the ones who are worth it. So the Quran comes in 178 And then one seventh run. وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيَضَرَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ عَلَى مَا أَنْتُمْ عَلَيْهِ حَتَّى يَمِيزَ الْخَبِيثَ مِنَ الطَّيِّبِ وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُطْلِعَكُمْ عَلَى الْغَيْبِ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَشْتَبِي مِنْ رُسْلِهِ مَا يَشَاءُ فَآمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرُسْلِهِ وَإِنْ تُؤْمِنُوا وَتَتَّقُوا فَلَكُمْ أَجْرٌ عَظِيمٌ So notice, it comes and it says, well, First understand, Allah knows that there are among you in Medina who made a special private deal for themselves, found that things are so difficult, and said, you know what, munafiqun, munafiqun, I don't care. I'm going to go and I am going to say to the Jewish tribes, count me in, Please include my trade. Tell the Qurayshis, I'm not really committed to this man. Get my business to Mecca. Others made special deals with the Meccans and said, listen, allow my caravan to reach Egypt. Allow my caravan to reach Syria. And I'll give you a cut. And, you know, yeah, this thing was Muhammad. It's between Muhammad and you guys. I, I personally leave me out. Allah comes and says, because of course, the merchants who sacrificed say, what is this? Our business is down the, the doldrums and these guys are doing really well. And Allah comes and tells them, don't think that Allah doesn't know. And don't think that Allah ignores what they do or lets, let, lets it proceed because of something that Allah, that is good for them. We are simply giving them an opportunity to see whether they will correct paths but their fate, whether in the here now or in the hereafter or both, is a miserable one. And it comes back and says, understand that for Allah, the critical issue is tamiz al-khabith min al-tayyib. 
is everything is structured in this world so that it becomes clear by the time you reach the end are you khabith are you foul or are you tayyib are you pure Those who say, well, I am tayyib, I know I am tayyib, but you know, Allah won't mind a little bit of khubth, a little bit of khabith here and there, then you're not tayyib. A tayyib is repulsed by khubth. It's like, listen, you can't say, I am clean, but you know, I don't mind if I go around with poop on my clothes every once in a while. Then you're not clean. Cleanliness is a state. Yamiz al Khabith min Understand that all of this. It is to make clear for the ba- for the for for that s- basic paradigm of witnessing testimony. Who can be attested to be khabith and who can be attested to be tayyib? What which do you want? What category do you wish to fall into? Remember again the beginning of Al Umran, the two parties. So it has taken you to a realization, full circle. The party that claims to be with God is the Tayyib or the Khabith? Obviously the Tayyib. And the party that claims not to be with God is supposed to be the Khabith. But you can't take that as a matter of belief and take it for granted. The party that claims to be with God has to be actually Tayyib not pretend to be tayyib. Okay. Then, oh, um, just notice quickly 181 when the Quran when it was revealed in the Quran saying من ذا الذي يخرج الله قردا حسنا Allah is, is, is talking to believers says who will loan God a beautiful loan meaning that when you give money it's like loaning God or that's the allegory that Allah uses that you know loan and and that loan will be paid tenfold manyfold back to you in the hereafter and Jewish tribes who were in the habit, them and the hypocrites, of composing ayat that mimics the Quran and mocks the Quran. Part of their jeering and mocking 
was start saying, well, what type of allegory is this? Long God? Well, it must be that God is poor and needs our loans. And so the Quran responds to this. It says, you know, I've heard, I've heard you. And that's blasphemous. And Allah will pay you back for this type of insolence in the hereafter. One eighty-two is the one that I've mentioned before. Is the um, again the polemics with the Jews was that they said that in the Torah it's clear any prophet, any real prophet from God, would have burnt offerings. This is in Jewish law. It's a very big issue in Jewish law that there has to be burnt offerings to the Lord. And since Muhammad is not doing burnt offerings, then he can't be a real prophet. And, and again, the Quran responds and says, this is nonsense. You know, where, where did you get this as a permanent sacred law? Um, Now notice, so now we're coming towards the very end, and Ali Omran tells us something that we have to pay attention to. Allah then comes and warns Muslims and says, brace yourself because Allah knows that you will be tested in your money and you will be tested in yourselves and that especially those who are people of the book and the mushrikeen, those who simply not accepted Islam but don't belong to the people of the book, expect that you will hear from them. Ezan kathira. Let's for now say a lot of hurt, a lot of harm. But if you persevere and you hold on, then that's truly the virtuous thing. Notice that A, again, for the time that the Quran is revealed, Allah is telling them that your, 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 those who have not accepted you, they're going to continue slandering and maligning and arguing with you. And the response is say, Tasbiru wa tattaku. Persevere and taqwa 
it is very interesting that the Quran doesn't, and notice this, go back and study every instance, you'll see it. The Quran never recommends silencing the criticism. The Quran never says, go shut them up. Sometimes it says, respond kindly. Sometimes it says, walk away kindly. Sometimes it says, persevere. But it doesn't entertain the possibility of saying, shut up, I don't want to hear it. It was entirely conceivable in Medina at the time that the Prophet ﷺ, acting like all emperors of the time, all emperors, would have issued a royal decree. Anyone that talks about the following subjects will receive a death sentence. That wouldn't have raised an eyebrow. This is what they all did. But he didn't. We pass over something like this without asking the question of why. Why the shura was Muslims and the allowing of the slandering by non-Muslims and saying respond to them or ignore them or be patient but do not but you'd never have as we will see silence them forcibly coercively but then the other thing is many commentators said this is not just mine this is many commentators said that much of what Ali Amran says about Ali Kitab transcends the historical circumstance. And it is as if Allah is putting Muslims on notice forever that these polemics in which Islam is attacked will never end. And at the same time, Allah is putting you on notice that if these polemics weaken you, break you, then you have failed in the test of sabr and taqwa. Okay. Now, um, the 178 is about the, the charge of concealing that, as, as I showed you, that the Bible does mention the coming of the Prophet Muhammad, which both Christians and Jews went to great lengths, even translating and even changing the translation of the Greek. Uh, to to deny that the, the the Bible says someone called the praiseworthy will be the coming Messiah. 
187 uh, no sorry 188 ولا تحسبن الذين بما أتوا ويحبون أن يحمدوا بما لم يفعلوا فلا تحسبنهم بمثازة من العذاب ولهم عذاب أليم uh, 188 this ayah of course it has a, a general tone like that it, it talks about those who like to pretend they've done things which they haven't done in order to impress people and get praised but more specifically it was said that uh, there were people who did not join the battle of Uhud and then when Muslims came back they started philosophizing about why they didn't join battle of Uhud spinning what they've done as an Islamic act human beings are always very interesting they never change right so some of them said oh well you know we worried we had foresight and we worried that the battle was not going to go be good so we wanted to remain back to be its last line of defense if things didn't go well others said well you know we stayed behind because we knew it was futile this battle was futile what's important is that these you know economic functions in Medina would continue um, another guy said you know if all of us join battle what would happen to the uh, contracts and uh, business deals and so I stayed behind to make sure that Medina's economy remains solid uh, you know in case the battle didn't go well then we needed it and the Quran in rather swift fashion comes in and says all of this is nonsense Allah knows what is in your heart and Allah knows that all of these are elaborate excuses for basically being cowards it is not that these functions are not important but it is what draws you to these functions is that you're cowardly you could go to battle and you could die and Allah will find a replacement for you but the cowardliness and so the expression they want to be praised for what they haven't done uh, but note that their faith they, they will receive their punishment now this is an example of mutashabih because it addresses a specific situation but what is the muhkam from it the muhkam from it is that if you spin things 
to make yourself sound like what you're not, you have something to worry about when it comes to Allah. Because Allah knows what's in your heart and knows you're lying. Okay. Now, we come to the crescendo, the closing, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then, as we saw in Surah Al-Baqarah, comes and says to us, this is 189, ربنا إننا سمعنا مناديا ينادي للإيمان أن آمنوا بربكم فآمنا ربنا فاغفر لنا ذنوبنا وكفر عنا سيئاتنا وتوفنا مع الأبرار This is 193 ربنا وآتنا ما وعدتنا على رسلك ولا تخزنا يوم القيامة إنك لا تخلف الميعاد فاستجاب لهم ربهم إني لا أضيع عمل عمل عامل منكم من ذكر أو أنثى بعضكم من بعض فالذين هاجروا وأخرجوا من ديارهم وأوذوا في سبيلي وقاتلوا وقتلوا لأكفرن عنهم سيئاتهم ولأدخلنهم جنات تجري من تحتها الأنار ثوابا من عند الله والله عنده حسن الثواب لا يغرنك تقلب الذين كفروا في البلاد متاع قليل ثم مأواهم جهنم وبئس المهاد لكن الذين اتقوا ربهم لهم جنات تجري من تحتها الأنهار خالدين فيها نزلا من عند الله وما عند الله خير للأبرار So comes the end, you have this very intimate, beautiful supplication and prayer. Having taken you through this whole journey, once again, Allah tells you, battles, conflict, turmoil, tests what it's all about is that this universe has an owner this universe has a designer who are the true winners in this existence are those who while standing up or laying down are constantly in Allah's dhikr. 
What is undermined is their God. Not all the other things, their God. And they consistently think of God and consistently reflect affirming in themselves the knowledge that Allah created all of this for a reason, for a purpose, whether we understand it or not. And this, the rest of this, this heartwarming prayer where basically you are supplicating and saying, we've heard you. And once we've heard you, we understood and we surrendered. And then Allah comes and says, فَاسْتَلْجَابَ لَهُمْ رَبُّهُمْ أَنِّي لَا أُضَيُّ عَمَلَ عَامِلٍ مِّنْكُمْ مِّنْ ذَكَرٍ أَوْ أُنْثَى بَعْضُكُمْ مِّنْ بَعْضٍ Allah answers their call and says, whether man or woman, I don't waste what you do. I'm fully cognizant. You are from each other's. Here, as Muhammad Asad, I believe it was Muhammad Asad. I should check if I don't remember. So Muhammad says, be it man or woman, each of you is an issue of the other. Um, oh yeah, the footnotes, he says, you are all members of one and the same human race and therefore equal to one another. And that, that's the point that I wanted to make. He's absolutely right. Meaning, you are from one another. You are same like one another. You are equal. There's no difference between you. Far more important than the statement that Islamophobes and ignorant Muslims love to go to, the, the, the one we dealt with, that there's men have a degree. Because that's mu'allam, that has that's explained by supporting ability. Here it's innate. So innately, you are ba'dukum and And I would add, not just gender, not just man and woman, but race as well. You are from one another. You are same, like one another. There's no difference. And what matters is what you do. So when it comes to those who sacrificed their home, migrated in my for for my cause, and suffered and were hurt, and sacrificed. Then Allah will respond to these sacrifices. And again, Allah knows that this path of sacrifice, which we all summarize, that Allah wants from you, 
is a difficult one because you will see those who live without a principle, without an anchor, that they look like they are dominating the world. That they go everywhere, they do everything. But in there, there is no meaning. So don't be fooled in thinking that there is a meaning. And then remarkably, the Quran comes back after having warned you that note that you will hear a lot of horrible things from people of the book. They will hurt you. But then it comes back again in Ali Amran to remind you at the end that there are people of the book who are pious, who are conscientious, who are moral, who are ethical. And for those people, they will be rewarded accordingly by Allah. This is obviously 199. And then one of the most famous summary Quranic uh, commands or advice. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu sabiru Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu sabiru wa sabiru wa rabitu wa attaqu allaha la'allakum tuflihun Believers, you want the, the nutshell of it. Sabiru, uh, usburu Persevere. Sabiru is to be diligently persevering, is to struggle to persevere. Warabitu, stand firm. When I was, I came to the United States as an undergraduate at Yale, I was very lonely, first time away from my home. First time in the U.S. and no clue what the heck is going on. And I was going through a very severe cultural shock. And living in the dorms with people who had very, very different value system than my own. I was having a very hard time. And I remember one of my teachers heard from my family that I was having a very hard time and that they were worried that I was going to quit and go back. And I remember I received a card from him. And the card only said this ayah. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا صَبِرُوا وَصَابِرُوا وَرَابِطُوا وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَفْلِحُونَ That's it. And when I read it, I broke down crying. 
because it was the summary of everything. What you must do is to be patient, to be a fighter, to persevere, and to stand firm. And not run away. Okay. Let's take two minutes and then I will summarize Ali Umran, inshallah, the whole journey. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So. Recall that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used the occasion of a major tribulation and hardship. to educate Muslims on the ethics of the response. We know what transpired, what took place, and the way that the Quran approaches it It's truly remarkable. First, it comes and it says, okay, before we talk about this battle, let's talk about the concept itself. Two parties in conflict, one that is supposed to be on the side of God and one is the other. And you understand that Allah has repeatedly promised to be with you and promised to aid you if you are on God's side. So what do we learn from the fact that things went wrong in this situation. And what Allah chooses to start with is truly remarkable. Because Allah starts with, you have to understand that as you unpack these events and reflect about what happened and you learn and you educate yourself about what happened that when it comes to Allah's teachings what is what are basic foundational moral principles Ummah Kitab are one thing and then the many variables that arise because of 
exigencies are another. And that this education itself will take you to exigencies. But what matters is that you anchor yourself in the foundational moral principles. And right off, it pulls you back and says, when you evaluate, it must be very clear if you are the party of God, who the mulk belongs to. Because if you are in this battle thinking that the mulk is yours, it's a non-starter. But be, there is a practical effect to this, that if you understand the way that Allah deals in Allah's mulk, you will also understand that Allah لا يطلعكم على الغيب that Allah, as Al-Amran says, that Allah will not share the ghayb with you, the world of the unknown. Which means that you function in history, but you do not see the full expanse of history. And Allah then takes you to a remarkable example of humble, pious people who ultimately make profound sacrifices that at the time looked like they were like tons of other sacrifices. When John the Baptist is executed, there were many others like John the Baptist who were executed by the Romans. However, from this very modest beginning, what unfolded in history was something completely unforeseeable and unpredictable. So, when you engage in these struggles, do not become obsessed with controlling the results. Only concern yourself with undertaking the methodical, correct steps. So what are those steps that you must absolutely anchor yourself in as a party of God? Now, 
understanding, now that you understand that the future belongs to God and you just do what you need to be focused on and leave the results to God, then what is it that you need to be focused on? And what unfolds is a literal curriculum of moral norms. Central to this is that you must be qawwamina bilqist, that you must be those who are focused in upholding the principle of justice and understand as a corollary to this, if you are people that exterminate advocates of justice, that suffocate, kill off advocates of justice, it's a non-starter. You are also to be people who must be focused on achieving mahabbatillah to be loved by God and to love God. And God loves just. What God loves is well known. Remarkably, Al-Umran reminds us that it, God's love is not according to dietary laws that are age-old that come from the time of the Prophet Yaqub. God's law is not pedantic. It is not about a race. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about the class. It's not about a chosen people. It's not about dietary laws. It is about moral values that are transcendental. Core to your quest for justice and the journey to love God and be loved by God and to your role as the party of God is to understand that everything must be anchored in in holding on to Allah's rope which means what? which means holding on to the center of your moral universe being the dynamic interrelationship between al-kitab, revelation, and hikmah, and wisdom. If you do not care about what role the kitab lives in your life, and what role al-hikmah, wisdom, plays in your life, and in understanding the interplay 
and the interconnections between the book and wisdom, then you have a problem. And core to this is the quest to be Rabbaniyun, is the quest to be godly people. And as we know that godliness as its heart and core is the concept of Bir. And as we said, Bir in essence is virtue. Al-Bar is a virtuous human being. A human being who deals with awe from a virtuous perspective. But also understand that any attempt to explore virtue on the basis of the book and revelation and wisdom, etc., that that is a mirage unless your relationship with material things is constantly interrogated and vetted out. It's not a theoretical construct, is unless you actually spend All of this leads us to a very core concept. An ummah centered on justice. An ummah centered on godliness. An ummah centered on virtue. An ummah centered on the principle of caring financially for the other. This is because this Ummah has a charge and an obligation and a role to play. And the charge and obligation and the role to play is to bear witness for Allah by enjoining the good al-amr al-ma'ruf al-nahan al-munkar by investigating, understanding, comprehending, exploring, pursuing, and enforcing what is good as to opposed to what is not good.
But in order to do this, understand you have a dual challenge. In terms of your social dynamics, your value system have to have the right source of influence. You cannot hang around the biltana, those who are, you draw close to you, whose conceptions of what is good and what is bad has nothing to do with godliness. Because there are many conceptions of good and bad that have nothing to do with godliness. Remember, I mean, if you have a tribe, for instance, that is a cannibalistic tribe, and they think it's a good thing when you defeat your enemy, you eat the bodies of your enemy, because if you eat the bodies of your enemy, then they will never gain power over you again because you, eat, you defeat their souls. Well, that conception of good, if you take this as batana to you, this is an extreme example, well, that's a disaster. So being socially, culturally, politically smart, but at the same time, this can never lead you into the injustice of unwarranted generalizations about the others. Al-Amr al-Ma'roof al-Nahyan al-Munkar must be anchored on discernment and fairness, knowing who shares your value system and who doesn't share your value system. And the party of God, this party, has a social slash socio-political ethic in that party. What are what are these social political they're al-af, al-rifq, shura forgiveness, kindness, and consultation. If you are harsh with one another, vengeful with one another, vindictive with one another, then it won't work. In other words, you must be a true ummah. Your love for God must make you love one another. If you don't have that love towards one another, that fundamental empathy, then again we have a problem. But in turn, for that to occur, you must understand, look at your role in your failures. When you experience disasters, calamities, hardships, misery, don't look for who you can blame. 
Whose fault is it? It is. Look at what? In your life, open the door for shaitan to come in and compound that misery upon you. If you're honest with yourself, you'll always see plenty of things that you do that open the door for shaitan. If you're dishonest, you're going to minimize these things and say, oh, but they're not that bad. Let, Let me focus on what this person does who's much worse. And significantly then, Ali Omran closes with two pieces of advice. Again reminds you, the party of God is fair. It discerns, it discriminates. It doesn't condemn sweepily, as we see in the Bible, where, you know, go in and execute all this and do that and do this. And two, sabr and musabara, warribat, taqwa these four things. Patience, perseverance, diligence, and piety. And with this, the lesson of the defeat in Uhud becomes a transformation. I don't remember who was it that wrote. Uhud might have been a military defeat. But it was, I forgot how he put it, but it was a moral jubilation or something to that effect. That that defeat through Al-Umran became a methodical lesson in the moral structure of the Ummah and the anchoring, the realization that the thermometer for whether this Ummah deserves Allah's support or not is the core principle of Al-Amr al-Ma'roof wa Nihani al-Munkar. That's why the Mu'tazila made it the sixth pillar of Islam. That, quite bluntly, are you a society that takes morality, what is good, what is just, what is virtuous, seriously? Or do you just concern yourself with making a living and then spin morality, spin your sense of right and wrong, largely in response to whatever material and career interests that might come up as you're going about? So something is right or wrong depending on how it affects me personally and that's it. Alhamdulillah. Okay, that's Ali Surat Ali Umran. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, 
I think I, I can speak for everyone in saying that this was truly amazing and such a gift. Um, the fact that never before Surah Imran, I think as you told us offline or maybe on, on camera too, um, has never been thematically pulled together. And this is, um, even the way that you present the summary and pull it all together is truly stunning. Um, and I, I think we are, we are truly just in, in your gratitude forever. This is incredible. Um, so let me, let me start by um, just sharing some of the highlights for this particular session, for day five, the things that we covered. Um, <clears throat> so the points about um, the compounding of sorrows and how this is an opportunity for cleansing and an opportunity for elevation. And the point is for us to look within and to be honest and to confront ourselves um, and to learn the lessons that God intends for us and to elevate and that the fact that there are sorrows upon sorrows and hardship means that we are in God's eye um, and that oftentimes that those who appear to have everything, um, wealth and comfort, um, those are the people that God has tended to look away um, and forgotten. So that's such a powerful way to understand um, the sorrows upon sorrows and the fact that there is no coincidence or no accident that when it rains it pours that multiple things happen um, that it's it's truly an opportunity um, <clears throat> I thought that the analogy that you gave us um, to Muslim Spain was so powerful that we live in a time where <clears throat> we would be the equivalent of the people outside or you know the Spanish I guess who were looking at how successful Muslims were um, and that our, our understanding of this is that, you know, we have a limited scope or a limited view in history, um, that we are not expected at this point in time to have victory or the solutions to victory, but it's our job to <clears throat> think and do seriously, think seriously about what we can do, um, to emerge from the state that we are in. Um, and it's so important because when you see it from outside that, you know, the, the Spanish were able to emerge and become a colonial power, obviously that's not what we want, but the point is that we are in such a dark time now that our job as Muslims is to do everything that we can in our power to think ahead and see what we can do to emerge. And that um, we can't change the world unless we start by changing ourselves and our families. And that it's too easy for people to point the finger and blame others, but we have to start with ourselves. Um, and the lesson about, <clears throat> to, um, to us about despite all the pain, betrayal, suffering, or things that we may, you know, trauma that we may have experienced, um, as, as the prophet, um, peace be upon him, was told, it's not appropriate to bear a grudge. Um, and that that was a, a different translation than most translations have, which is extremely powerful. Um, and that when all of these things have happened in failure and thinking about, you know, what went wrong, 
that people tend to justify their themselves um, and they can even begin to blame the message so but god is saying that this is you know don't blame the message don't blame the messenger but look inward and look at yourself because the message is what is constant and the variable is your role in that and it's important to be honest and not to just make excuses for example when people were giving all the reasons why they didn't fight and turning it into something islamic that god ultimately knows what is truthful and what's in your hearts um, and, that, and that god was telling those people that you were at that point closer to kufr than iman and that that was another way that we saw how god speaks according to the audience um, that he's addressing in, in a very different uh, in, a, in a very powerful way um, verse 169 that fighting and dying for a cause um, that death is not what we think and that that's in god's purview um, <clears throat> and that the qualities of cowardliness greed selfishness all of these things are from um, shaitani influence or from the shaitan and that um, people who are uh, wali allah or friends of god or close to god um, shaitan has no hold over them that imran truly sets the standard um, for for muslims and for humanity with for believers <clears throat> that you must have solid faith um, be in a constant state of the remembrance of god or dhikr and sacrifice um, material material things um, and that it's important to teach the sira in, in based in reality um, what oftentimes has happened is people let Muslims off the hook but if they really understand the reality of the situation that that actually is is more powerful um, ultimately are you foul or pure um, and again coming back to the idea of the two two types of two groups whether you are with God or without um, very interestingly, the Quran never calls for the silencing of critics and allows for slander and points out that these types of polemics will always be a constant. And if you weaken, um, then you will have failed in patience and piety or sabr and taqwa. And so importantly, verse 195, um, saying that we are, you are the same, whether it's male, female, and extending that to gender or any other um, distinction that we are all human beings we are all equal um, and there's just so much that can be built from that that Allah knows that this path is difficult that Allah knows that there are people who look like they have everything but that is meaningless um, that we again um, despite hurt that will come from people of the book we have to have ethical discernment we have to know that some of the people of the book will be good and those the rewards um, are with god for for those people and that if in the final as you as you summarized um, the four points patience perseverance diligence and piety are what will carry us through that very beautiful last part alhamdulillah there's truly um, amazing. Um, I guess what we should talk about some other time is, is if the next session we do Q&A, right? So if you guys have questions for Sora Imran, please um, email them to me, grace at usuli.org. And I guess we will just probably dedicate then Tuesday, right, to Q&A. So thank you for being with us.
Um, this has been a fabulous, incredible night, um, a present to all of us <laughs> on, um, on Christmas. This is the best pre Christmas present that Muslims could get. <laughs> so, finishing so much, Sura Imran. Thank you guys so much. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And inshallah, we will see you on Tuesday. Assalamu alaikum.